Last week we took a bird's eye view at the book of Isaiah, and we, we learned from that study that Isaiah's message could be summed up really in his name, which means God is salvation. The, the book of Isaiah communicates this message by recounting the fact that the people of Judah and Jerusalem have sinned. And, and as a consequence of their sin, judgment through exile is coming. In, in the face of this impending judgment, Isaiah calls the people of Judah and Jerusalem to trust in God, for he will redeem his people through his servant and son. Though Jerusalem will be destroyed, God will make all things new. We're going to see that message encapsulated, really, in these first five chapters, the chapters that we're looking at together this morning. If, if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. If you're going to use one of the Bibles provided, which you're welcome to do, that's on page 566 of the Bibles provided. 566 of the Bibles provided. And we're going to be uh, working our way back and forth through these chapters, these first five chapters. And if you uh, haven't spent much time looking at a Bible before, the, the chapters are the larger numbers there in the text, and the verses are the smaller numbers. And I'm going to be referring to kind of chapter and verse. So hopefully that will help you find your way around as we talk about chapter, larger number, versus smaller number. So, though Isaiah lived and ministered mostly, mainly in the 8th century, addressing the people of Jerusalem and Judah in that time period, these, these five chapters are actually mostly devoid of historical particulars. In, in the first five chapters, Isaiah, he is, he's really laying the foundational message for his book, for this book, which he is going to work out over the remaining uh, 60 plus chapters. So, so what we're going to do today is, is really look at the main themes of, of these chapters. In, in Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, three main themes emerge. Israel's rebellion, God's judgment, and God's promise of redemption. That's going to form really the outline of the rest of the sermon. I think there's an outline provided for you there in the, in the bulletin. Now, it's, it's not all that surprising when you think about these themes, rebellion, judgment, and redemption. It's not all that surprising to see that, that these are three major themes in the Bible as well. The Bible as a whole. The Bible is the story of God creating the world and all that is in it. He made man and woman in His image, but sadly they, they rebelled against Him. And in the face of their rebellion, God promised the first man and the first woman that He would, he would judge their sin and that He would redeem them from it. As the storyline of the Bible presses on, uh, in the Old Testament, the, the rebellion of mankind grows. And God's promise of judgment is reiterated. And His promise of redemption is, is reiterated and it's clarified and, until it culminates in Jesus Christ when we come to the New Testament. This, uh, this morning, we're, we're studying the portion of the Bible that's continuing to explain to us the, the rebellion of man. Uh, the severe judgment that sin deserves. And just how gracious God's redemption is. These three themes, rebellion, judgment, and redemption, not only form the, the backbone of these five chapters, but they, they, as I said, they echo down through the remaining chapters of the book. And they're recycled and they're clarified and they're intensified throughout. In fact, that, that strategy of repetition and amplification occurs within the first five chapters. That we see. So with this in mind, it's important for us to get a, a clear grasp of what Isaiah is communicating in and through these chapters. This message that Isaiah proclaimed is, is so long ago was, was relevant in his day. He was speaking to a rebellious people. And it is relevant in our own day. As rebellion still exists. Judgment is still coming. And redemption is real. So let's begin with thinking through these themes. Let's begin with the first theme that these chapters really introduce. And as we begin to think about this theme of rebellion, the rebellion of Jerusalem and Judah, and in fact all mankind, let's begin by reading just the first six verses of the book. So start there, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read through verse 6. The vision of Isaiah, son of Moses, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days that Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children 
have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Now you see, when we we read these verses last week, we observed that Isaiah... And, and really other prophets in the Bible, they both foretell, T-H on the end of that, foretell, and they, they foretell. They foretell in the sense that they tell the people of God how they have failed to be faithful to the God who has been faithful to them. This aspect of, of prophecy has led some scholars to call prophet, uh, prophets covenant prosecutors. Uh, they are those who are, are litigating a lawsuit on God's behalf. And when we read these verses, the verses that we just read, that that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Here we see Isaiah calling heaven and earth to act as witnesses against the people of Israel. And then he brings his charge. Israel has rebelled. And then he, he proclaims Israel's guilt. They are a sinful nation. Now, none of this really makes sense unless we remember Israel's special relationship to God. Rebellion doesn't make sense outside the context of a relationship. That's the problem. That's the, that is the problem with the, the morality that's being put forward in our contemporary culture. What's right for me is right, and what's right for you is right. We can't compartmentalize, separate, or, or silo off our morality from one another. We, we actually live in relationship to one another, and more importantly, we live in relationship to God. And frankly, our relationship to God is either a good relationship or or a bad one. Just as God created Adam and Eve and called them to keep His commands, so later on in the history of redemption, God created the people and nation of Israel. He rescued them from Egypt and He called them to keep His commands. You see, God has always purposed to have a people for Himself who reflect His character and His concerns. The people of Jerusalem and Judah are guilty of rebellion. And at one level, this rebellion is what characterized the relationship of the people of Israel during the the reigns of the kings that are really mentioned there in verse 1. They were guilty of violating the the Mosaic covenant. On Mount Sinai, the the people of Israel, they agreed to enter into a covenant with God, a a relationship with God. They agreed to to keep His commands and and walk in His ways. In fact, in Deuteronomy 27, with one voice, the whole nation, the people of Israel, they gathered together and they agreed to suffer the, the curses of the covenant if they disobeyed God's commands. They agreed to this relationship with the Lord. And here Isaiah is announcing, you've disobeyed. And, and how they have disobeyed. Isaiah works that out for us in these chapters. Iniquity and corruption are introduced there, as you'll see in verse 4. There are people laden with iniquity. But, but what does this mean for the people of Jerusalem and Judah? Skip ahead there to verse 21 in chapter 1. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves, everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts, they do not bring justice to the followers, and the widow's cause does not come to them. See, Isaiah tells us that the people of Jerusalem and Judah are guilty of injustice and murder. There in verse 21, bribes and gifts under the table are mentioned in verse 23, along with the apparent oppression of orphans and widows. Those in society and the justice system ought to prefer the concerns and cries and claims of orphans and widows. But what has become clear is they prefer the money of men with wealth. Jerusalem and Judah are worshiping mammon. 
That's not a problem that our society faces, is it? We don't struggle with the love of money, do we? And of course we do. And sometimes we even rationalize our greed. We, we rationalize hoarding our resources by claiming that we're being good stewards. These, these weren't the only problems that the ancient people of God were wrestling with. If you skip ahead to chapter 2, you look at verses 6 to 8, you'll notice there that they've turned to idols. The people of the one true God have become people of the gods. They've become just like the surrounding nations. They're no longer a distinct people who reflect God's character and concerns to the watching world. Does the church today distinguish itself by reflecting the concerns and the character of the living God? Is there any idolatry in our lives? See, idols demand our attention. Our idols have, they have to put themselves first in our lives. They have to put themselves as the priority and order our priorities. What calls for your attention? Uh, what, what orders your priorities? Who or what are you building your life around? Do we organize our lives around the accumulation of material things? Do we, do we have to work this many years in this job so we can get this thing? Are our lives organized around building a career? What, what governs our, our schedules? Does everything else flow from that priority? Are our lives organized around meeting with God on this day with these people and remaining connected with them throughout the rest of the week? Or does meeting with God and His people get crowded out by other things? Does it get crowded out by extracurricular activities and, and entertainment? I mean, we have idols, we struggle. Worship, as we see here in Isaiah, does not belong to created things. That's what idols were. They were created things. Worship belongs to the Creator. And the people of Jerusalem and Judah worshiped and served false gods and idols. And in our own way, sometimes we, we do the same today. One of the things that Isaiah communicates in these chapters is that everyone sins. Everyone Sins. So both men and women are marked by sin. If you skip ahead to chapter 3, what verses really 14 to 23 are about is detailing how men sin and how women sin. Men are particularly accused of loving money more than mercy. They devour the vineyards. They leave nothing for the poor as God's law required. Women, on, on the other hand, are portrayed as loving attention. They glance wantonly with their eyes, trying to draw in suitors. Their, their feet, they, they tinkle with jewelry. No doubt these were items intended to draw and attract attention. These women might very well be linked to the men mentioned in this section, the men who oppressed the poor. Perhaps they had received these many accessories through the oppression of the poor. Twice in chapter 5, uh, Isaiah identifies the sin of, of drunkenness. In verse 20 of chapter 5, you, you look there at verse 20, you'll see uh, that what is evil, how, this is how morality is inverted, what is evil is called good, and what is good is called evil. This sounds an awful lot like what happens in our day. Uh, the death of children through abortion is celebrated as a means of saving the planet. That's calling evil good. Another form of calling evil good is disguising and rationalizing a form of racism and ethnocentrism as safety and security concerns. Friends, that is evil. Let us not call it good. There is hardly a week goes by without some news story coming out about corruption in the justice system. Take a look at, at verse 23 of chapter 5. It's joined with the woe of verse 22. So woe to those who quit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. See, what's true is what we read in the very beginning in verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah chapter 1. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Jerusalem and Judah are guilty from the sole of the foot to the top of the head. Jerusalem and Judah are guilty from the lowest in society to the king who sits 
on the throne. That's true of humanity today, is it not? We, we can identify leaders at the tops of societies and nations, and we can identify people at the bottom. Everyone has sinned. Everyone in every class, every gender, every race and ethnicity, everyone has sinned. And really what I've, I've just done here is just pulled out particular behaviors that we find, behavioral sins that we find uh, in these first five chapters. But there's an, there's an attitude in these chapters as well that's portrayed that goes along with these sinful behaviors. Four times in Isaiah, he, he mentions a haughtiness and a pride. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 16, and 5, verse 15. Uh, these uh, citations, I think, are in your handout there. Um, so there's a haughtiness and pride that strings throughout these chapters. What's more... Uh, is that the people are actually proud of their sin. So turn over to chapter 3, and you take a look at verse 9. What you'll, you'll notice there is that the people, they were told that they proclaimed their sin like Sodom. They're not ashamed of their sin. They, they hold it out in public for everyone to see. And, and running alongside this haughty behavior and pride is a deep hypocrisy. So turn back to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. We see this hypocrisy in Israel's worship. Um, let me begin reading there in verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 1. What to me, this is the Lord speaking, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. You see the hypocrisy. As a Christian, I loathe being called a hypocrite by the world. But the real question is, would God call me a hypocrite? The truth is, is there's, there's hypocrisy in all of us. And of it, we must repent. Haughtiness and hypocrisy is actually a heart problem. Indulgence and iniquity do not spring from mere ignorance. In, in chapter 1 of verse 3, you'll see that I, Isaiah identifies a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding as a problem. But this is not a bare ignorance. This is a willful ignorance. This is a desire to turn a blind eye to God and His law because you do not want to live according to His ways. All of the sins and acts of rebellion mentioned in these first five chapters come from the hearts that, verse 4, see chapter 1 of verse 4, that despise the Holy One of Israel. That's the real problem. Isaiah mentions this same problem in chapter 3, verse 8, and chapter 5, verse 12. But turn to the end of the section we're looking at this morning. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24, where Isaiah mentions this, this heart problem one last time. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours, devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. If you despise God's words, if you despise God's commands, it is because you despise God. Christian, recognize this. The moral discussions that we are having with our, our neighbors and co-workers and friends and family members about what is right and what is wrong in our world are rooted in this reality. You either love God and His law, or you despise God and His law. 
conversations about morality are not ultimately about us or our feelings or other people's feelings. They are ultimately about God and whether or not we despise Him and His law. Perhaps more than anything else, these five chapters speak of how God will respond to this rebellion. The rebellion of Jerusalem and Judah. God will respond to the rebellion of, the rebellion of Judah and Jerusalem with judgment. So let's turn now and consider the, the second theme that we see in these chapters. We see God's judgment. And that, go ahead and turn back to the beginning of Isaiah, uh, chapter 1. Um, the first thing that we need to see in these chapters is judgment is in fact a response, a just response to Israel's rebellion. If you take a look there at verse 23, we're going to see, we're going to read verse 23, which, which states a sin, and then, and then we're going to read, move into verse 24, which states God's response to sin. So begin there in verse 23. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges at the first and your counselors at the beginning and afterward. You should be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Notice that, therefore, in verse 24. That makes clear to us that God is not unjust and arbitrary in his judgments. His judgment is righteous and just. There are actually six therefores in these five chapters. Clearly, Isaiah wants us to know that the Lord, and the Lord wants us to know, that the punishment that he will inflict on Judah and Jerusalem is good and right, and that it comes as a consequence of sin. And what these verses that we just read also introduce to us is that the idea that redemption and restoration, they actually come through God's judgment. Redemption and restoration actually come through God's judgment. God, God's hand turns against his people to purify them. To remove their, their dross and alloy. Verse 25. God brings his judgment upon his people so that they may be righteous and faithful once more. Verse 26. More on redemption in, in a few moments. Now, there are actually different kinds uh, of, of judgments uh, mentioned in, here in these chapters. One of them pertains specifically to God's relationship with the people of Israel. Earlier we read about how the Lord loathed Israel's hypocrisy. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, we learn that part of God's response is to turn away from the, the hypocritical worship of His people. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, when you spread out your hands, you know, they're coming before God, they're spreading out their hands. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The Lord is denying His people an opportunity to appeal to Him. His refusing to listen to them in prayer is certainly an act of judgment. Praise God as believers and Christians, those who are united to Jesus Christ, that God always hears our prayers through Jesus. This will never be true of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. But this is certainly an act of judgment. God closing His ears. There's another act of judgment. There's going to be acts of judgment on the land itself. So the promised land of Canaan, uh, where Jerusalem and Judah were situated, uh, they were supposed to be a lot like the Garden of Eden. Uh, several times in the Old Testament, Canaan, the earthly home of the people of God, is described as a, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's filled with plants that produce great fruit. So in Numbers 13, when the, the people of Israel are getting ready to go into the land, they're kind of scouting it out, uh, they find out that the land has grapes and pomegranates and figs, they, they bring back the treasures of the land. It is a lot like what Eden sounded like. But listen to what happens in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 10, as a result of God's judgment. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. You see, the, the once fruitful land will now yield very little. This kind of judgment is consonant with the curses 
for rebellion that were announced in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Going back even further, uh, this judgment is, this kind of judgment is in step with what we see taking place in the Garden of Eden. Remember, as a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, the ground was cursed and it would be difficult to reap the fruit of the land. This is judgment. But turn back to chapter 1. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Uh, here I want us to, to see how Isaiah begins to unveil another kind of judgment. In particular, this kind of judgment that's going to be dealt with all throughout the book of Isaiah. It's the judgment of exile. And I want us to see how Isaiah develops this thought throughout these chapters. And now I, uh, I've mentioned the exile a number of times. And I just want us to, to make sure that we all understand what that means. The exile for Israel is akin to what, to what happened, what took place with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they sinned. Just as Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, they sinned, God thrust them out of the garden um, for their rebellion. So the people of Israel were going to be thrust out uh, of their land for their rebellion. And, and this exile, it's going to take place in the history of Israel, this exile from the Garden and from the Promised Land are but really faint pictures of God's final judgment. For when He comes to judge, He will exile all those who have rebelled against Him from His loving presence for all eternity. That's what God's final judgment is. It's an eternal exile from His loving presence. It is facing His wrath, His judgment forever in hell. But this exile that Isaiah mentions here, the unfolds, this was promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So listen as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses uh, 49 to 52. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. Now with that picture in mind, a nation coming down and besieging the people of Israel, Let's read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate. It's overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. See, Isaiah, he picks up that same language from Deuteronomy chapter 28 of being besieged, and he, he subtly hints, or not so subtly hints, that judgment is coming. Now skip ahead to chapter 3. Isaiah keeps unfolding this. We're just going to read the first verse of chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply and all support of bread and all support of water. Here what we're given is an image of a city under siege. And then what follows in these verses is a, is a picture of a city devolving into chaos. People do desperate things when there's no food and water. Now skip ahead to Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah, in this chapter, Isaiah uh, depicts the coming judgment in a poetic parable. Judah and Jerusalem are depicted as, as a vineyard, as a beloved vineyard that God carefully planted, but He's going to let be destroyed and overrun. And, and as we read Isaiah chapter 5, just verses 1 to 7 for now, try to keep in mind what I read from Deuteronomy 28 just a few moments ago, where the Lord promised that a nation would sweep down, besiege the land, and tear down the fortified walls. So Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you 
what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice but behold bloodshed. For righteousness but behold an outcry. I wonder... Did you notice the affection that God has for His people? He he sings over His beloved. He he takes care to plant her in a pleasant place and provide her with, with all that she could. He did everything necessary for her to yield good fruit, but she yielded wild grapes. That's a good way to describe The rebellion that we've seen in these chapters. What else can God do with a rotten vineyard? But destroy it and purify it through judgment. In His judgment, the Lord will allow His vineyard, His people in Jerusalem and Judah to be destroyed. Now skip ahead to verse 13 in this chapter. If you look there, the exile is made explicit. Let's pick up reading in verse 13. We'll read through verse 16. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the Holy God shows Himself holy in righteousness. See, exile is coming. And chapter 5 ends with a description of the hunger of the foreign nations preying upon and devouring Jerusalem and Judah. God's people will face God's judgment through a foreign nation. But God's people are not the only ones who receive a promise of judgment in these chapters. They're not the only sinners who live on the face of this earth. God also responds to the high and haughty spirit of mankind more generally in these chapters. So turn back to Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 10. Here we see God's judgment on the rebellion of the whole earth. Let's begin in verse 10 and read through verse 17. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. And against all the oaks of Bashan. Against all the lofty mountains. Against all the uplifted hills. Against every high tower. And against every fortified wall. Against all the ships of Tarshish. And against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Now, there are several things that should stand out to to us in in these verses. First, notice they're aimed at all mankind. See, God's judgments concern not only His people. So, verses 6 to 9 of chapter 2 were about, but the whole earth too. Chapter, that's verses 12 to 22 of this chapter. Jerusalem and Judah have been haughty, but so has everyone else on this earth. Just as Israel stands in relation to God as their Creator, So the whole earth stands in relation to God as their creator. So the Lord will pull down anything and everything that endeavors to exalt itself over Him. There was that contrast, right? You heard all, 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 everything, everything, everything. And in the end, right, the Lord alone will be exalted. He's going to pull down everything and exalt His own glory. And notice that the terror that we see depicted here there will be nowhere to run nowhere to hide from the terror of the Lord you can you can try and hide in the rocks of the mountains or in the dust of the desert but God's terror and judgment reaches there 
The creator of the world knows its every crevice. Let's also notice from these verses that there is a day appointed for judgment. This day must be the the last day that is still in the future for us. Isaiah looks forward to that last day. For the idolatry spoken of there in verse 20, it still pervades our earth. Four times in verses 10 to 22, a day of judgment is mentioned. And for Isaiah, this day of judgment is, is a day also of exaltation. The Lord will be exalted in the midst of this judgment. This is a concept that's going to be mentioned nearly 40 times in the book of Isaiah. The day of the Lord is going to come up over and over and over again. And in fact, it's already come up even before verse 10. It came up in the opening of chapter 2. And, and there it comes up in the context of redemption and restoration. This concept of the, the day of the Lord in Isaiah is incredibly inclusive and all-encompassing. It includes both judgment and redemption. So let's turn now and consider our third theme in these first five chapters. God's promise of redemption. One of the things that we need to recognize uh, about these five chapters is that God's grace is peppered throughout them. And at at critical points too. Uh, So in the midst of judgment, God will preserve a remnant. He will preserve a people for Himself. So right after God promises His people that they will be besieged in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we get this in verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Samora. So you see, judgment is coming, but a few survivors will be left. The judgment coming will be terrible, but it will not utterly wipe out the people of God, nor His promises to Abraham to have a people for His name, or to David to have a king. Because there are survivors, God's purpose is to bring a king and to save His people from their sins, yet remains alive. And and do you remember the section where God upbraided His people for their, their hypocritical worship? Right after that, in Isaiah chapter 1, I think it's verses 10 to 15. Right after that section, actually verse 17. um, Right after that confrontation and, and the exhortation to love what he loves, the Lord says this in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Here is a call for the people of God to return to Him in repentance and faith and so be forgiven of their sins. Even in the midst of judgment, God is gracious. Consider, uh, look at verse 27 of of Isaiah chapter 1 and and think, this verse, it comes on the heels of God calling Zion, the city of Jerusalem. He calls Zion a whore who is filled with injustice, unrighteousness, murders, rebels, thieves, and corrupt officials. And then we get verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. There is grace in the midst of judgment. And grace actually comes through judgment. Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 are a glorious promise of redemption. Notice notice what takes place. Let's read Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. And notice... That in, in these verses, there, there's a day. Notice the days in these verses. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk 
in the light of the Lord. Here, we have a picture of a new and renewed humanity. And this is just what our world needs, isn't it? The world needs a people walking in the light of the Lord. And the New Testament teaches us that the latter days spoken of there have dawned in the work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is now bringing about new creations. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Holy Spirit is now bringing about new creations who have God's law written on their heart and long to follow Him. But we have, though the latter days have dawned, we have not yet reached the last day when this vision will be full and final. So what we have here is also clearly a picture of, of that heavenly Zion, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, Jerusalem that's, that's later promised in the book of Isaiah. Clearly we have a picture here of eternity where people from every tongue and tribe and nation come to worship the living God. And Not only has warfare against God come to an end, but so has warfare of man against man and nation against nation. We're not there yet, but it's coming. The image of these men beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks is an image of warriors beating their weapons into tools for farming and vineyard work. Flip ahead to chapter 4. We see another glorious image of redemption. Here we have another picture, not merely of what a renewed Jerusalem and Judah look like, but of the whole earth. Isaiah chapter 4. Uh, let's begin there in verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful, glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion or remained in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole mountain site of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies a cloud by day, and a smoke, and a shining, and a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. What we have in, in both of these passages, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, are, are images not merely of a return to the Garden of Eden, but of a glorified Eden and a heavenly city of Jerusalem, a place where once again God dwells with man in peace. And how does that happen? How might we come to walk in the light of the Lord, as Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5 says? How might the rebellious people mentioned in these first five chapters, the rebellious people who live in our world, the rebellious people who are us, how, how might these rebellious people come to be a part of God's people who are recorded for eternal life in the heavenly city of Jerusalem? Isaiah chapter 4 verse 3. How can we have our sinful filth? Isaiah chapter 4 verse 4. How can we have it washed away? How might, be we, how might we be cleansed by the blood stains, the crimson stains that, that our lives, our sins have left? How can God's Holy Spirit of judgment and burning accomplish this? Well, the answer is in verse 2, chapter 4. The answer is the branch mentioned in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. In Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, the branch points to the messianic king. He's the king from David's family tree. So consider, listen to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. You're welcome to turn over there. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. This is how Isaiah develops this idea of the branch. Isaiah writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This branch refers to the Savior King from David's line. And he is the true, and, and this, uh, he's the true King. And this is even spoken about more broadly. This branch is spoken about more broadly in the Old Testament. 
So listen to how the prophet Jeremiah talks about this branch in Jeremiah chapter 23. Verse 5, Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Prophet Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, adds his voice to the prophetic chorus about this righteous branch. This branch, this Messiah, he will be beautiful and glorious. Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2. Unlike the vineyard that produced wild grapes, he will produce good fruit. He will be a king, unlike the kings listed in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1 who rules over a rebellious people. Whereas the people who lived under those kings were rebellious, the people who live under the righteous branch are those who are called into his holy service. It is only through him Bearing the judgment and the burning wrath of God for the rebellion of His people, it is only through Him being exiled from the land of the living on behalf of His people that they may enter into the heavenly city of God. And do you know who this branch is? This branch is Jesus. He is our only hope of heaven. And thankfully, Jesus, He picks up the image of the branch and the vineyard in His own teaching. In John chapter 15, he tells us that if we abide in him, we will have this eternal life spoken of here in Isaiah chapter 2 and chapter 4. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think that's on page uh, 901. 901 of the Bibles provided. John chapter 15. In verse 1 of, of John 15, Jesus picks up the branch and the vineyard imagery of Isaiah uh, chapters 4 and 5 and says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now pick up reading there in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he that bear, it is he, that it, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. It's the eternal exile. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see what Jesus has done here in John 15? As the messianic branch, He steps in and becomes the beloved vineyard of God. The Old Testament people of God could not yield good fruit. We cannot yield good fruit. We only yield sin and rebellion. But when we unite ourselves to Jesus Christ in faith, when we abide in Him, we become part of His family tree. Branches that bear good fruit for the glory of God. We become those who learn His ways and walk in His paths. So that the whole world may know the law and the word of God is Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're, you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, then I want to invite you to consider the message of Isaiah chapters 1 through 5. We have sinned and rebelled against the living God who is holy and just. We are in danger of facing His just wrath against our sin forever in hell. We are in danger of facing an eternal exile from God on the day of judgment. An exile from His gracious and glorious presence. But the good news that Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, the good news of the Bible is that he did send the branch that he promised. He did send the king from David's line and his name is Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man and he lived the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He never rebelled. He never bore wild grapes in the language of Isaiah 5. And yet... Though he was perfectly righteous and sinless, he gave up his life on the cross, bearing God's judgment and wrath against the sins of all of those 
who have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. He died. He was exiled from the land of the living. But three days later, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead so that all who turn from their sin and rebellion and place their faith in Him might have eternal life. So friend, turn from your sins and believe that Jesus lived for you the life that you have not lived. Believe that He died for you the death that your sins deserve, the punishment, the judgment that your sins deserve. And believe that He was raised from the grave so that you might be raised to the heavenly city of God. It's mentioned in Isaiah chapters 2 and 4. And, and if you want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus, to, to have your filth washed away by His blood shed on the cross, then please don't hesitate to talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. I'll be at the door after the service. I'd be delighted to talk with you about this good news of Jesus Christ. And as we conclude, I, I think that we ought to remember what we have coming to us in Jesus Christ if we are abiding in our branch and our vine. The, the glorious vision of heaven given to us here in Isaiah chapters 2 and 4 is restated by the Apostle John in his vision, in Revelation. Listen to what he says at, at nearly the very end of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 26. John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Brothers and sisters, with, with this in view, let us take up the words of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, and let's make them the words that we live by now and forevermore. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, we hear, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together.